I, I said earlier, it, it is the foundation of our gospel. It's the foundation of why we believe what we believe. And really, this morning, we're essentially unpacking that song. Um, I'm not going stanza by stanza or anything like that. But the message of this, of this morning, what we're studying this morning as we continue... We have two more sermons left, two more messages. To, today is um, justification by faith or meaning that comes through faith. And the next week is sanctification, and I'll unpack that. But this morning, everything that we just sang in that song, in Christ alone, fits into the message this morning. And, and if you just read those words or if you sing those words over and over in it, in your head, you're going to find that they apply to what we're studying this morning. And I, I've really enjoyed this series. I think that, that we don't spend enough time really understanding where our eternity comes from, how that price was paid, what makes it happen. And by understanding it, it places within us an ability to relate to God on a deeper level. So I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to dive into this, this message, this um, continue this sequence, and uh, I'm going to pray that the Spirit guides us in our, in our growing. Father God, thank you for your revelation that comes through your word. God, we, we know that you paid the price, that you took on the penalty, and... We know how to recite those words over and over again to say that you died, live. But God, what, what does that imply? What, what are the implications? How, how, does, how do we understand that? God, this morning as we open up your word, let your spirit come upon us so that it is clear and understandable why we need you so desperately and why your son's sacrifice is the catalyst event of all of human history. God, I, I pray that this morning you work within this message, that you move, and that we are attentive to your words. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to speak more primarily probably to the men right now. But how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but if you really want to, struggle with asking for help? Where it's like, Man, I just, I, I <laughs> Steve's like not wanting to, to raise his hand. So it's like, I can't raise my hand. I can't admit it. I say men because I think this is a tendency more with guys because we just, you know, we're, we're going to figure it out as we go along. And if we break our necks in the process, well, at least we didn't have to ask for help, you know. And, and women are wiser. You know, if, if I need help with doing it, I'm going to ask someone for help to do it. But there's this, there's this tendency for us to just plow through and, and not desire to ask for help. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is in driving. Maybe not so much now because of the invention of GPS, but how many of you have gotten lost while driving on the road and you have your wife or your girlfriend next to you and, and she just kind of smugly looks at you, honey, are, are we lost and, and you just, you know, you can't admit it. You can't say you're lost. So you say, well, no, no I know exactly where we're at. And you just keep driving. And, and you, your beads of sweat are coming down off your forehead because you know you're lost, but you can't admit you're lost. And then that one 
that one suggestion comes, why don't you pull over and ask for help? And, you know, that, that's just an attack on, like, on your manhood. You, you can't go and pull over and ask for help because that just that doesn't work. And, and so you just say, you know, we're almost there. It's only two lights away or it's only two more stop signs or it's only a couple more turns. And so instead of just asking for help and, and allowing someone else to get you out of that mess, you get yourself into a deeper and deeper mess all the, all the way. And I don't know if that's happened to many of you. It's never happened to me. I mean... <laughs> It's so funny how, you know, these things shouldn't be happening anymore because of GPS, but it seems like they happen all the more. You're following the GPS. I don't know if any of you have ever watched the TV show The Office, but in this show, this guy is following GPS to a T, and he's tur he turns right, and there's a pond, but the GPS says, keep going, follow the road, and he goes right into the pond because he's so focused on GPS. And that, I think that's how we are because it, I, I'm following myself. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to seek help from someone else and I think we many of us can admit that we have this tendency that we just got to fight and figure it out on our own Now we got to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps we have to be the ones to do the work and adventure to say many of us have had to learn how to ask for help over the years because it just kind of seems contrary to our nature and so how does the way that many of us struggle with seeking and asking and accepting help how does that apply to Salvation. Why is it so important for us to realize that eternal life, that, that the kingdom of God that is given to us, is something that we can't attain on our personal capabilities? Why is this realization as well so important? Why is it such a, a necessary realization in the sequence of our salvation? You know, in the early church, it was primarily made up of Jewish believers. It, it probably took until the early, or some scholars say even maybe the 300s AD, before Gentile believers became the predominant people in the church. Even, even some of the early church fathers, though they had Greek names, were probably Jewish background. And so almost... The, the vast majority of people in the church, especially that Paul's writing to right now, had a Jewish background. And a Jewish background means a, a background with the law. Where everything you do, everything in order to attain this relationship with God is based off of merit. It's based off of your righteousness, based off of your achievements, based off of what you do good in order to reach God, in order to climb this ladder to God. Because... The, the church was primarily made up of this background, it was really hard for them to fully understand and grasp what Jesus had done. Jesus, at this time, yeah, he had done something great. He had rose from the dead. He had paved the way for them to do it. But it was really hard for them to relinquish that feeling that they needed to be the ones to pick them up by their bootstraps. To relinquish that feeling of, I can do it, I have to be the one to do it, and instead say, I need help in doing this. And Paul's writing to the Roman Christians, and, and he hasn't really visited them yet, he just knows of them, and they know of him, and, and, and he knows that they really understand the scriptures, they really understand and, and grasp some of these things, and so he's writing to them on this higher level. And as he's writing to them, He's making sure that they understand 
earn our salvation. We don't do enough good to get ourselves into eternity. He's teaching them, as we're going to see today, and we'll talk a little bit. Last week, Avery talked about the doctrine of penal substitution, the doctrine of Jesus taking the penalty that we were supposed to take, and he takes it in our place. But how does that doctrine, that that doctrine that is foundational, every Christian should be able to explain what that doctrine is. And if you can't explain it, then I would argue that you don't fully understand how you've gotten yourself into this eternal promise. So how does that doctrine apply to what we're talking about today receiving salvation through faith and that's what we're going to look at and we start now actually in reverse order we're going to conclude with the main text but we're going to start with a text that goes ahead of this uh, Romans chapter 4 Paul remember he's writing to to Jewish believers and some of them are there's some Gentiles intertwined, and these Jewish believers are really trying to get these Gentile believers to follow the law, to to go through circumcision, to keep remembering all of the holy days, to do all of the things that they used to do as Jews, but just the only difference was that now Jesus is kind of the, the main guy. So everything's the same except for we have Jesus and he kind of we change our names a little bit. And Paul's telling them, no, everything is different now. And, and you want to know what makes it different? Well, let's look back to the past. Let's have a blast of the past and, and remember this guy who is pretty important to us Jews. And, and he writes about Abraham. And he says in verse 1, chapter 4, What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does Scripture say? It says, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as for righteousness. Now, the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So, so Paul uses this example of work. And, and he's saying, essentially, you know, you go to work, you you put your time card in, you pull that time card out, you, you go and you work your eight-hour day, you come out, you put that time card in, you put that time card out, and what you receive is based off of what you have done. You are given your wages because you put in the time to receive those wages. You have earned your pay. And that was how the Jewish people understood the law. The law was their direction. It was the contract that they signed that said if they work this amount of hours, they will receive this amount of pay. It was, I do this good, I do these sacrifices, I, I follow these laws, and I will receive this amount of righteousness. And Paul is saying, well, it doesn't really work that way. Because there's no level of righteousness that we can attain that will bring us into God's righteousness. And so rather than earning our way, we have to just be gifted righteousness. We just have to take it on faith. And he says, before the law was ever given, this was done to our forefather Abraham. Look at Genesis 15, if you don't want to flip there. It says that this is talking about Abraham. Remember, Abraham was 
the forefather of Israel. At this time, he hadn't had any kids. He's in his 90s or somewhere between 80 and 90. And his wife, Sarah, is somewhere between 70 and 80. And they're up there in age. They haven't had any kids. God has promised them descendants, but it hasn't happened yet. It happens. It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And, and he's not just saying here that you will have descendants, but he's saying your descendants will come from your own body. They'll come from, as we see in chapter 18, they'll come from your body of marriage as well. So not even from you, but from you and Sarah specifically is what I intend. And your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Imagine hearing that as a 90-year-old man, that you're going to have a kid, and that kid is going to produce offspring that is more numerous than the stars. Does not make sense. Your wife is old, you're old. That's not going to happen. That's biologically not possible. And yet, what does verse 6 say? Abram believed the Lord. And that belief was credited to Abram as righteousness. Abram didn't earn his righteousness. He didn't earn this result of having a descendants that was numerous. He didn't work into this promise. God said that, hey, this is going to happen. And Abram said, oh, okay, I, I believe you. And through that belief, righteousness was given to Abram. He didn't stamp a time card. He trusted that the gift would come. And Paul is writing this to, to Jewish believers that just cannot understand what it means to find salvation through someone else, through, through a gift, not through merit, not through earning it. And this is all then, like I said, comes after what he has already explained. So this what we just talked about with Abram, where basically God is saying, or Paul is saying, the righteousness of God can only be attained through faith. The righteousness of God is not attained through anything you do. It's not attained through, through anything that you have earned. It's only given through faith. Paul gives this example of Abram because he's trying to explain it to him beforehand. So in what we're going to finish with is chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. This is the study. This is where Paul's unpacking what it means to find salvation through faith alone. And starting in verses 19 and 20, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be subject to God's judgment, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the wall. That, that, the law word justified is really important. Because what that word justified means is that you are full of sin, you are full of mistakes, 
And essentially, you're coming before God, and he's saying, I have wiped the slate clean. And he throws the gavel down, and now, instead of walking out of that courtroom and going into prison, walking out of that courtroom and going into life. He's saying, I have justified you. And Paul's saying, but that justification does not come through the law. The law just shows us our sin. The law shows us. It's a us who God is and how filthy we are. It doesn't justify who we are. It doesn't bring us out of the courtroom and into life. There's only one way that's possible, and that is through faith. And there's another Old Testament example of this that is really important for us to, to draw our attention to. This happens in Exodus, where after a long time has passed, Abram's descendants, Abraham's descendants, God fulfills his promise, and there are numerous. At this time, it's likely that there were somewhere between six million Israelite people, Hebrew people, alive. And they're held captive by Egypt. They've been held captive by Egypt, and, and God has raised up Moses in order to bring these chosen people, this Hebrew people, out of Egypt to take them to the land that God had promised Abraham. And he, Moses goes to Pharaoh ten different times, and ten different times God shows Pharaoh his might through these plagues that he does. And, on the, and it wasn't until the tenth plague that God or that Pharaoh finally relented because he saw God's power. But what was the tenth plague? And that tenth plague, why is it so important for this? In Exodus 12, we get a description of this plague. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel, the tenth day of this month, they must select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his home are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion that animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male, and you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the, animal, slaughter the animals at twilight, and they'll take some of the blood and put it on the two port the two doorposts in the lintel of the house where they eat them. Okay, so that's a lot of information, but it ultimately culminates in the Israelites, before this massive plague happened, were supposed to slaughter unblemished animals, take the blood of that animal, put it on the side put it on the top doorpost. And, and this has never happened before. Remember, God is saying this is going to be the first month of your year. This is going to mark the moment that you all are becoming a nation. So this, there's no precedence for this. This doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Why in the world are we decorating our do doorposts with blood? And in hopes that God won't kill the firstborn. And we get that from 12. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt, and on that night I will strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's what's important. Because at this moment, God has said, I'm going to destroy every firstborn male, every animal in the land of Egypt. And the only way that you can withstand this judgment that I'm bringing on Egypt, and also you, is if you paint the doorposts of your house with the blood of this unblemished animal, and the firstborn child of every Israelite family is not sleeping that night. Because all they're thinking about is, boy, oh boy, if we didn't paint that doorpost right, that's it for me. Imagine the amount of faith that would have needed to be had in order to trust that God would pass over the doorpost. And that same thing is asked of us. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's not, because here's the thing, all that night, that entire family and that, that firstborn child is just sitting there thinking, boy, there is nothing I can do to escape this. I can't pray hard enough to God that he's not going to come. I can't say, I'm going to do this amount of good the rest of my life, God, or I, I, I can't earn my way into heaven, God. I just have to trust that blood is enough. The same thing is said with us. And Paul's making this point, that there is nothing we can do according to the law. There is no amount of good that will make us righteous, only the action of God can save us. Nothing we do brings us eternal salvation. Only what God has done can do that. And if you're wondering, well, how is this possible? Maybe you've paid attention to this entire series. Maybe you understood what it means for the fall to have happened. Maybe you've understood what it means for us to look at the law as a mirror. Maybe you've understood penal substitution. But I promise you, this probably won't make sense. Why in the world does faith in Christ save us? Paul explains it as best as he can in the following verses. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But they're justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so that He, he would be righteous and declare righteous to the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's what's happening then. We're not possible. It's not possible for us to be righteous enough to be in God's presence. God is the epitome of righteousness. There's no level of righteousness that we can attain on our own accord to bring us into God's courtroom of righteousness. So we needed someone else to do that. And here's how this works. It's called double imputation. It's a big phrase that just basically describes what the atonement means. That in Christ's death, 
He took on the wrath we deserved and poured out his righteousness in our place. Think of it this way. This is a tissue. Everyone at this point knows what a tissue looks like because we've used them for the last three years constantly. This has never been used. It's not dirty. There's no stain on it. It is unblemished. Same way with Christ. Fully righteous. Fully stainless. And this is sin. And this sin has marred humanity since the fall, as we talked about weeks ago, that this, this sin is on every single human person, and we can't get rid of it. No amount of works can get rid of this sin. No amount of scrubbing can get rid of this sin. The, the law is just a mirror. We can't pick that mirror up the, off the wall and scrub ourselves with it. And this sin is poured out to all of us. And in case you can't see that, I just poured that onto the table. That table is us. We are now inhabiting sin. And the act of the atonement, the cleanness of Jesus, wiped up the filth of our sin. And his righteousness, through cleaning up our sin, was imputed onto us. Meaning that his cleanliness came onto us and our sin went onto him. It's double imputation. Imputation means we put something onto someone else. Double means twice. So twice has happened. We put our sin onto Jesus. And what was once fully righteous now became fully filthy. But what was once fully righteous has come onto once what was fully filthy. Jesus inhabited fully the wrath of God. As we say in, Christ, in the song Christ Alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. You, you wonder, well, if God is fully love, how can God be fully wrath? Well, the reason we can understand that God is fully love is because his wrath over sin was poured out on Jesus. God's wrath had to be poured out. God's vengeance had to be poured out. He abhors sin. He had to pour out that wrath on sin. But if he poured it out on us, that was it. We're gone. We are in hell for eternity. So who did he pour it out on? He poured it out on his son, who took our sin upon himself and put his righteousness unto us. And so the wrath of God was satisfied and the righteousness of God is now on us. Not because we've earned our way, not because we've deserved the righteousness, not because we have worked according to the law to the best of our capabilities, and God said, boy, oh boy, you sure are close to righteous. Here you go, come into my eternal kingdom. No, it's because he said, my son took on your dirt. My son took on your sin. My son took on your filth. And I poured my wrath out on him. My wrath was satisfied. And now you have gotten his righteousness upon yourself. If anyone asks you, well, how does salvation work? It's through this. Our sin went on the pureness of Jesus, and the pureness of Jesus came on to us. 
And through God's righteousness that has been given to us through the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, we now have eternity waiting for us. Now, the reason I brought up the difficulty of asking for help at the beginning is because one of the most underrated difficulties in our faith is accepting that righteousness. Now think about how contrary to our nature it is to simply say, God, I can't do it. You know, we try every single day, we say, I'm filled with sin, I'm filled with temptation, I'm filled with lust, I'm filled with this, this, this addiction I can't get rid of. I'm going to pick myself up and clean myself off. And Paul is saying, no, you're not. It's not possible. You can't do it. If you want to be with God, you have to trust, you have to have faith that he's the one that has justified you. That's difficult for us to accept. But it is imperative that we do. Without faith, we cannot, we will not enter eternity. Because there is no other way that we are justified. There is no other way that we are clean enough to withstand the presence of God. So I hope that each of us today If we're believers in Christ, we acknowledge that there is nothing that we can do on our own. We simply accept what he has done and we thank him every single day and we say, because you've done it, I am following you with my entire life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not saying, I'm going to do what I can to earn my righteousness. It's saying, I can't do anything. You've done it all and I am following you wholeheartedly. you're not a Christian, if you haven't given him your life, you have to have this awareness. It's not possible to earn eternity any other way. There's no other religion. There's no other road that leads to Rome. There's no other road that leads to the top of the mountain, to, to heaven. Only Christ, only his righteousness can allow us to be in the presence of God. So I hope and I pray that you are moved by this, that you realize this, that you have to accept by faith the righteousness that he wants and has already poured out for you. And during this time, as we come into this closing song of worship, I urge any of you that need to make a decision, whether it's a commitment to Christ, whether it's a commitment to saying, I'm going to let him be the reason that I'm righteous, or I'm going to give my life to him, if you have that commitment to make, don't waste another day. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer, and we're going to have this hymn of worship, and if you need to make a decision, I beg that you come forward. Father God, this morning, let it sit in our hearts and our minds, the awareness that we cannot earn our way to you. Father, for the Christian, for the one that has committed to following you, God, I I ask that you place on us this realization that you alone are holy, that you alone are righteous, and that righteousness has been poured out upon us. God, help us to, to acknowledge it, to have thanks for it, 
to live by His righteousness and follow Him because He gave us that righteousness. And God, I ask for anyone that hasn't accepted it, that they're moved by the realization that they need Christ's righteousness. I pray that they hand over, that all of us hand over our filth and our dirt to you. Thank you for being willing to accept it. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.